Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today's discussion came from our archives and was recorded in January of 2022. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, a longtime faculty member here at the Henry George School. To celebrate Black History Month, we wanted to pause our regular content and give our listeners a special series on the political economy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. For the next few episodes, we'll have a three-part series exploring Dr. King's intellectual evolution and how it impacted his solutions to addressing poverty. Mr. Dodson attended Shippensburg University and Temple University, where he received an economics degree. Ed worked for Fannie Mae, a public-private partnership to help distribute home mortgage loans. During his time at Fannie Mae, Mr. Dodson held numerous management and analyst positions within the Housing and Community Development Group, helping revitalize neighborhoods and local communities. This gives him an interesting perspective on land use and reform and how it can reduce inequality. He also has extensive experience as a history lecturer at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute in the Learning is for Everyone program at Burlington County College. Edward has written many papers on history and the political economy and is the author of a three-volume book series titled The Discovery of First Principles. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. And welcome, everyone. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Martin Luther King Jr. is someone that we need to celebrate and continue to remember to celebrate his contributions to our society and the progress of our society are enormous. And hopefully this talk that I'm about to give will present some of what he learned over his too short lifetime in some detail. Let me let me start off by telling you that the inspiration for for me to do the research to do this presentation came from reading a book by a long term longtime friend and colleague of of many of us who unfortunately died uh, a couple months ago, Walter Rybeck. His book is titled "Resolving the Economic Puzzle." He, he, this was published in 2011, and when I first read it, he, in, in the book he discusses his own background, and he attended Antioch College, where he befriended Coretta Scott, and talks about in the book, Walt played the piano, and he accompanied Coretta Scott on a number of her um, singing uh, in. Uh, events that she had at churches and other venues. And he writes about that. It's, it's a book that I would, I would really recommend. Walt's career was in journalism, 
And from journalism, he moved into working uh, in Washington, D.C. for a number of important political figures, including Paul Douglas in uh, the early 1970s, when Douglas was appointed by Richard Nixon to be head of a commission to study urban problems. And later in his, his working life, Walt uh, was the legislative aide to Pennsylvania Congressman William Coyne. Um, remarkable life and, and the book uh, is, is really an interesting life story that he tells as well as uh, his, his beliefs about economics and how he came to support the uh, economic ideas of Henry George. So uh, that's the inspiration for, for this, this talk, what led me to start to research uh, King's writings and his life. So we know him as the leader in the nonviolent approach to gaining full civil liberties, as well as equality of opportunity for, for Blacks in the United States. Um, less appreciated, I think, is his broader concern to end the very existence of poverty altogether. And, and that's, that's what um, I will be exploring in the talk. This is, this is my name, Edward J. Dodson, as Ibrahima indicated. Um, I, I have been on the faculty of the Henry George School for quite a few years. I think the first year I taught was back in 1981. So that'll give you some idea of how old I've become uh, over, the, over this period of time. Well, um, thanks to a, uh, another friend and colleague of mine, Mike O'Mara, he pointed out to me uh, a several quotations from Martin Luther King that I have added to this presentation to start off with. In 1967, King's book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, was published. And King was looking ahead to the day when racial discrimination was no longer tolerated, but he knew this wouldn't really bring an end to poverty, that, that in fact, much more had to be done. And you know, this is just an interesting uh, image I found on the internet. Notice in the background, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, and he, and it's headed race and redlining, housing segregation and everything. And King came to understand that this was a serious problem in the United States. Um, it was our own version of apartheid in a sense, this housing segregation and how that affected the economic and social well-being of people. So he believed that deep changes in the nation's economic system were called for. Um, there were many people of every race who were born into and remained in poverty all their lives. Um, however, Blacks certainly suffered from the worst institutional disadvantages. Uh, the history of land settlement offered some very important insights into the effects on Blacks in, in America. And these are a couple of quotes that, that Mike pointed me to that I've included here that I think they're pretty uh, pertinent to King's thinking. He writes, after the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. He goes on, he says, not only that, 
They provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. And not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Um, you can see, you know, in King's thinking, already understanding our history, how much advantage was transferred to European descendants of European immigrants. And he finished up with this. Not only that, today, many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, he's talking about the poor people's campaign, we are coming to get our check. So he's, he's really asking for a redistribution of wealth and income but a redistribution of wealth that is meant to repair past injustices. Um, and that's, that's what his story that I'm gonna tell you is going to embrace quite a bit and get into the specifics. And by the way, if you have a question or comment, feel free to interrupt me, but use the reaction mechanism in Zoom. So go to the reaction mode, uh, button and click on the yellow hand and that will appear at the top of my screen so I'll be able to hopefully see who's asking uh, a question or comment. Okay, so some biographical information about King to start off with. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1929. He attended the Booker T. Washington High School until 1944. Um, he Although he had not formally graduated from high school, he was admitted to Morehouse College. And I really don't know what, you know, the, was it, were his grades so good and he had basically finished school, I don't know. But, but he, he was accepted at Morehouse before he actually had his high school diploma. At Morehouse, he was introduced to the writings of Henry David Thoreau. Uh, and these had a lasting influence on the direction of his own activism. He later wrote about, about it. He said, during my student days, I read Henry David Thoreau's essay on civil dis disobedience for the first time. Here in this courageous New Englander's refusal to pay his taxes and his choice of jail rather than support a war that would spread slavery's territory into Mexico, I made my first contact with the theory of nonviolent resistance. He graduated from Morehouse in 1948 and entered the Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. And here he, uh, as a student, he began to broaden his uh, study of what might be called the great ideas. And he later recalled about, about his studies at the Theological Seminary, he says, I turned to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers from Plato and Aristotle down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. All of these masters stimulated my thinking such as it was. And while finding things to question in each of them, I nevertheless learned a great deal from their study. And he was open-minded enough to examine even the ideas that he instinctively found repugnant. 
So he decided to examine the rationale behind the communist ideology. And in doing so, he read Karl Marx, uh, which is not easy. And he, I've read Das Kapital, and it is not easy reading. Uh, and he also read the Communist Manifesto, Manifesto. So in doing this, he's a devout Christian. And so he rejects the communist interpretation of history. And although he thought Marxist ideology to be without principle or even evil in its fundamental nature, he acknowledged why others might embrace it as a path to escape from longstanding oppressions. And on, on this, these are the points he, he made. Excuse me just a sec. <clears throat> he says, with all of its false assumptions and evil methods, communism grew as a protest against the hardships of the underprivileged. Communism, in theory, emphasized a classless society and a concern for social justice, though the world knows from sad experience that in practice it created new classes and new lexicon of injustice. To King, he says, the Christian ought always to be challenged by any protest against unfair treatment of the poor, but he rejects the communist solution to it. Um, we could have a long discussion about what he was really talking about. Was he talking about the theoretical communism or was he talking about state socialism as it had evolved in Russia and in China and in other places? So. This is the same argument that many Marxists are having today about Marxism and saying, well, no society has ever really embraced Marxism. We've had some hybrid of it in the way that those who defend capitalism say we've never had capitalism. Um, so he's, he's struggling with these, these ideas. He, re he rejects the communist perspective, uh, but importantly, he comes to the conclusion that capitalism as practiced is inherently unjust and in need of specific reforms. And his time now is going to be spent trying to figure out what those reforms ought to be. He says, my reading of Marx also convinced me that truth is found neither in Marxism nor in traditional capitalism. Each represents a partial truth. Historically, capitalism failed to see the truth in collective enterprise. Marxism failed to see the truth in individual enterprise. He goes on, he says, 19th century capitalism failed to see that life is social and Marxism failed and still fails to see that life is individual and personal. The, the way that I've always tried to think about this in search of a just society, a search for just law justly enforced, is that we're trying to find the right balance between rights to property and human rights. And we still struggle with finding that balance in our everyday discourse and in, in our intellectual arguments and in the political realm where legislation over you know, taxation and wealth redistribution and social welfare programs, all these issues point to that struggle to find the right balance. Well, for King, you know, the next phase of his learning occurs in Philadelphia 
where he hears a sermon by Dr. Mordecai Johnson, president of Howard University, who spoke of, of a recent trip to India and of the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. So this takes King on that path. He's gone from Henry David Thoreau to all the major philosophers to reading Marx. And now he immerses himself in the study of Gandhi's life and Gandhi's works. He comes to embrace Gandhi's strategy of nonviolent resistance as the answer to the unfair treatment of, of persons of color received in the United States. The question then arises, at least in my mind, to what extent was King also influenced by Gandhi's views on reforms of how to end poverty? I mean, it's one thing to accept nonviolent resistance, but Gandhi had a very specific point of view because of the society in which he lived. He was a dedicated agrarian and championed the cause of the landless peasants. He supported the outright confiscation of land from India's large landowners, as land was then to be distributed free of charge to the poor. It was his view that only those who actually worked the land should be permitted to own it. He declared as follows, this is a very short quote, land in all properties is his who will work it. And there's a, a lot of fairness in that, you know, uh, assertion. Now, we shouldn't have land sitting around vacant that is usable, that it will help produce the goods that we need to survive. And so this land to the tiller program has a lot of, of merit in my view, uh, and, but it has complications as well. Um, you know, this is what Henry George had to deal with in, in his proposals to impose an annual charge on land equal to the potential annual rental value of land. For most of these farmers, it would be very little or, or little at all if they had small acreages that they're farming. But um, what it does in fact seem very consistent with the idea that individuals should not own more land and control more land than they're actually using productively. Um, and that's some, some basic principle that we haven't grasped as, as societies. We have, you know, uh, I think it's Ted, Ted Turner now owns more land in the United States, land area in the United States than the entire state of Delaware. And there are a few people who are right up there with them. So you have basically in this country, in the United States, you have a very high concentration of ownership of land area. Um, the question of how concentrated is the ownership of land value is, is for another time. Well, so years later, King finally makes a journey to India to visit Gandhi's place of birth. And while he's there, he gives a radio address uh, that was delivered just before he came back to the United States. And he, and he said this in this address. Since being in India, I am more convinced than ever before that the method of nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for justice and human dignity. In a real sense, Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life 
certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe. And these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravitation. What are those principles? It boils down to the planet being our commons. And how should we share the commons? What are the measures required for us to have equal access to the commons that's provided to us by nature? Or if you're a religious person, by the creator. In a November 1956 sermon, King presented an imaginary letter from the Apostle Paul to American Christians. And he's basically challenging those who claim to be Christians to be consistent with the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Oh, America, how often have you taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes? God never intended for one group of people to live in superfluous, inordinate wealth, while others live in abject, deadening poverty. This is inherently unjust. Um, it's not the normal. It has to be a problem created by human institutions and human behavior. That's, his, that's the view he's come to. Speaking in 1963, he talks about the poverty that now has crossed or has always crossed the color line. And he says, to this day, the white poor also suffer deprivation and the humiliation of poverty, if not of color. It corrupts their lives, frustrates their opportunities, and withers their education. In one sense, it is more evil for them because it has confused so many by prejudice that they have supported their own oppressors. Let me read that again because you know, think about the relationship that people have with in, the, in the, every society between those who provide the labor and those who take advantage of, of the labor of others. It corrupts their lives, frustrates their opportunities, and withers their education. In one sense, it is more evil for them because it has confused so many by prejudice that they have supported their own oppressors. We can think of, of many ways that this manifests itself. One, one way that I have explained American history and the ethnic conflict that's existed here, not just between blacks and whites, but between whites of different national origin or religious you know, differences. It's, it's kind of like this. Immigrant groups who wanted to escape what was worse in the old world wanted to come to the United States or other places that were not very densely populated and basically said, open the door and let me in, but close the door behind me because I'm starting out at the bottom. And so if you, you let me in, but you let in another group that's even more poor, they're going to compete with us for the crumbs that fall off the table. And so we have this, this interesting uh, dichotomy of conflict between groups at the bottom again, and not really looking at the basic causes of the problems. And that is that the laws of that society, of every society you're coming into, are made by those who are advantaged 
and made to protect and secure that advantage for as long as possible, to make it as difficult as possible to challenge conventional wisdom and to affect change. And this is what King's fighting. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the world that he's he's in, and he's trying to now dedicate himself to fight. He asked some of the some of the same moral questions raised by others regarding the treatment of nature as private property. And this is this is where you know, Henry George's influence begins to come into his thinking. And going back to my original introduction, Walter Rybeck, as as Coretta Scott married Martin Luther King, Walt spent time with them. Uh, he you know, had many conversations with Martin Luther King about the inherent justice in Henry George's works. And King slowly but surely seemed to begin to embrace the ideas. And in fact, at the end of this presentation, I think that King quotes Henry George in his final book. He says about all this, he says, you see, my friends, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two thirds water? Well, perhaps we wouldn't have to pay very high water bills if the water didn't have to be cleaned up, you know, uh, extensively before we could actually reconsume it. But, uh, but the world now, many countries have been dealing with issues of whether or not water supply should be turned over to some private entity. And that's created all sorts of, of social issues in those countries that have done so. And water rates have gone way up, et cetera. So something that wasn't yet really in the public discussion at the time King was writing, but you know, certainly it was a problem if he had lived to see what happened in Flint, Michigan, uh, you know, perhaps he would have been involved in trying to, to solve that problem. So despite the history of how blacks and other persons of color were subjected to centuries of unjust law, King looked to government to secure economic rights. He, he, he believed that only government could have had the ability to really deal with these issues in a serious way. He described capitalism as it existed, again, to repeat what I, what I said earlier about what he said earlier, permitting necessities to be taken from the many to give luxuries to the few. Uh, and anyone who has look at, looked at the, the trend of income and wealth concentration that's occurred in the United States and in many other countries over the last several decades, um, has to reach to the conclusion, I think, that there's something systemically wrong that results in this. This is not a reward for effort. It's, it's a result of, of serious systemic flaws that need to be changed and reformed. The reforms that he sought were directed toward achieving what political economists described as a just distribution of wealth. Government needed to be pressured to secure and protect economic as well as political rights. And in a speech he delivered in 1965 to the Negro, uh, the Negro American Labor Council, he made this argument. The good and just society is neither the thesis of capitalism nor the antithesis of communism. 
but a socially conscious democracy which reconciles the truths of individualism and collectivism. Call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children. Sounds very much like uh, something that Bernie Sanders might say uh, in a speech. King observed that in his world of 1963, Blacks and persons of color were the last hired and the first to be let go in the workforce. And this was all the more so because of improvements in the efficiency of industrial machinery. This is the beginning of the age of automation and massive investment in capital goods that are that is leading to a reduction in manufacturing employment across the United States and elsewhere. Added to that, other countries, Japan and Germany, fully recovered from the Second World War with their infrastructure rebuilt, had the latest state-of-the-art technologies, and they were effectively competing with the United States uh, and other countries, uh, whereas for you know, 15 years after the Second World War, the United States was basically at the, you know, without a, a real competitor. And so it's now forcing the United States to make changes in the way things are done. It's, it's corporations, it's, it's companies are starting to uh, adopt different methods. And what King is observing is that it's creating a problem for those at the bottom of the economic ladder. He says, the nation will also have to find the answer to full employment, including a more imaginative approach than has yet been conceived for neutralizing the perils of automation. Today, as the skilled and semi-skilled Negro attempts to mount the ladder of economic security, he finds himself in competition with the white working man at every, every time when automation is scrapping 40,000 jobs a week. And he ends with this. Though this is perhaps the inevitable product of social and economic upheaval, it is an intolerable situation and Negroes will not long permit themselves to be pitted against white workers for an ever decreasing supply of jobs. And we can see you know, in the, the late 60s, the kind of civil unrest and urban unrest that this has generated and, and, uh, and our cities were in the United States were burning uh, out of the frustration of people who were prevented from securing the, what Mortimer Adler would call the goods of a decent human existence. King's vision of a world in which all persons felt part of society rested on this realization of full employment. And to that end, he sent a telegram to Lyndon Johnson. And in the telegram, here's what he wrote to the president. I propose specifically the creation of a national agency that shall provide a job to every person who needs work, young and old, white and Negro. I propose a job for everyone, not a promise to see if jobs can be found. There cannot be social peace when a people have awakened to their rights and dignity and to the wretchedness of their lives simultaneously. 
If our government cannot create jobs, it cannot govern. It cannot have white affluence amid black poverty and have racial harmony. I would say that you know King really understood that without the opportunity to earn a decent living, the social conflicts would only escalate into political turmoil and violence, uh, threatening really the, the very life of the democracy that was potentially the promise of the United States as a society, a promise that, that was unfulfilled, unrealized, but still there. Um, because the private sector had failed to deliver a full employment economy, again, King calls upon the federal government to fill the void. And this is the only thing that's going to help people, give them, give them uh, a job, make them give them something to feel good about and, and, as part, and being part of this society. He says, we must develop a federal program of public works, retraining and jobs for all, so that none, white or black, will have cause to feel threatened. At the present time, thousands of jobs a week are disappearing in the wake of automation and other production efficiency techniques. Um, King did not live to see what happened in the 80s and 90s with what happened with the the takeover artists and leverage buyouts and, you know, uh, and all the financial manipulations that occurred on Wall Street, et cetera, you know, with executive compensation going out way up and up. Even in the 1960s, early 1960s, you know, it's already the core is there for recognize that there's something really wrong, that some people get such high rewards in our society and others are left at the side. And um, this is what King is struggling with to come, come to grips with. Let me stop there just for a minute and, and ask if you have any uh, comments or questions uh, thus far. And I have a question or more or less of a comment. Uh, his idea of having uh, the government making promises that they would provide employ in, uh, employment to deal with the... Yeah impacts of automation is very similar to what we are hearing today from uh, the MMT folks. So I was wondering if there is anything different on how uh, he envisioned, what, how he, he planned to, to have this funded. Well, uh, uh, he, he was arguing for a, um, an increasingly increasing uh, progressive income tax as part of the way it should be funded and for, for taxes on corporations. Um, he had not expressed anywhere in his writings um, um, that he had come to embrace Henry George's concept of collecting revenue from the taxation of economic rents. Okay. But as I, the quote that I you know, made earlier, he understands that there is natural resource monopoly. Um, and, you know, I, I can't really say this for certain, but I, I did talk to Walt Rybeck, you know, several years ago about his relationship with Martin Luther King. And he, he felt as though if King had lived longer, uh, that he 
was slowly beginning to, to grasp and understand Henry George's perspective. Now, this leads me to say this, which is um, hard, no way to prove or disprove. And that is in the same way that Henry George in the 1880s became a public figure with as a charismatic leader and hundreds of thousands of people around the world rallied to his cause. If Martin Luther King had lived, perhaps he had the same power to move people in, in a positive direction uh, had he come out and fully embraced Henry George's scheme for solving poverty, it might have had a dramatic impact on what happened legislatively, not only in the United States, but perhaps in other countries. But that's, you know, one of those, one of those issues that, that can't be resolved because he was taken from us at such an early age. He wasn't yet 40 years old. He still had, you know, uh, a whole life ahead of him to, to continue to work for the kinds of changes that he, that he sought. Uh, that's the best answer I can give you, Ibrahima. Thank you very much, Ed. Anyone, anything else? Anybody else have a comment or thought? Okay, well, I will go on then. So in an article he wrote that appeared in the April 3rd issue of Saturday Review in 1965, he acknowledges that racial and economic problems in the Northern states were far more serious than he ever understood them to be. Um, his biographer, one of his biographers, David Lewis, uh, explains it this way. He says, the illusion of freedom in the North had masked its hideous economic conditions, matriarchal families whose morality was vitiated by perpetual dependence upon welfare programs, levels of unemployment that had actually risen in the decades since Montgomery, and agglutinations of the impoverished in, in substandard housing that had few equivalents even in the South. I mean, that's, that's hard to imagine that conditions in Northern cities were worse than they were in the South. But, uh, but uh, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. And in the 1950s and 60s, uh, areas of Pittsburgh that, that were populated by African-Americans were devastated. And uh, the same thing was happening in the steel industry as, as King alludes to here of others. And that is the steel, steel industry was, was uh, reducing its employment base with new technologies. And the jobs that were, had been available to many uh, it, who, who were in the black community were now being, they were now being denied because of, uh, of white unionization methods. And, and, and so these neighborhoods, it was called the Hill District in, in Pittsburgh, they became a subject of plans for urban revitalization. And what that really meant was tearing down as much as possible and moving the population away somewhere. Where did they go? I don't, I don't know. I, I do remember in, the, in uh, the late 80s, I attended a conference at the Urban Institute, sponsored by the Urban Institute in, in uh, Harlem. And one of the uh, scientists who studied, the statisticians who studied demographics said, in the last 20 years, a half a million uh, 
uh, persons of color have left Harlem. And we have no idea where they went. There wasn't replacement housing available for them. They somehow moved on or they, they moved in with family or they doubled up or tripled out into uh, small houses that were available. This was just what was going on at the time. You know, the city's in crisis. Um, housing that was built in the 1890s or early 1900s for factory workers that was meant to last 25 or 30 years, it was cheaply constructed, was still housing people. After, and it was you know, now 80 years old and in terrible conditions. And these are the things that, that Martin Luther King was observing and, and others were observing and starting to fight against. Well, late in 65, King goes to Chicago and he goes there to add strength to a coalition that was formed to take on Richard Daley and <clears throat> Chicago's very racial uh, and economic segregation. So, you know, this is just a picture of the march and, and coming into Chicago with, with this kind of, of impact to get Daley's attention and the Chicago politicians to really finally stand up and listen. So high on his list of priorities, was the rental housing available in neighborhoods that were dominated by blacks. And here's just one photograph to give you an example of the typical kind of housing that people were living in. You know, as I said, you know, it was, it was built when there are factories right around. So Philadelphia has this, had the same problem as Pittsburgh and, and almost any city you can think of. Um, <clears throat> the factories go away the housing's still there, um, but it's old and decrepit and there's no work because their jobs have left. The jobs have gone to the suburbs or to the south or to or overseas. So, so this was part of the problem that, that they were dealing with. It wasn't just a housing problem. It was an income problem and it was an employment problem. Now, King coming away from his, his campaign in Chicago did get some results. In August of 1966, Chicago announced a $500 million investment plan for the depressed areas of the city. And after a lot of negotiations with Daly, they finally agreed to promise ending the housing discrimination. So if you're familiar with the term redlining, that started in Philadelphia and spread throughout the country. And, and it was a serious problem by the by the mid-60s in almost every northern city, industrialized city. So King's learning lessons from the Chicago campaign, and he's being joined by, by, by many people of different, different races, different ethnic backgrounds, and even different different uh, members of different classes in the United States who realize that these, these problems have to be resolved. And, and after, after the, all of this, he does come to a very strong conclusion about what must be done. And this is where it's hard to know exactly where he was going. He says, for years, I labored with the idea of reforming the existing institutions of the society. A little change here, a little change there. Now I feel quite differently. I think you've got to have a reconstruction of the entire society, a revolution of values. Those of us who have been teaching at the Henry George School, that's 
what we've been trying to fight too. We've been trying to, you know, through our lectures and, our, and the courses that we've taught, we've tried to address the value system that has allowed people in societies to accept the idea that it is legitimate to monopolize nature, that some should be able to control nature, the planet, the earth, when it is our commons to be shared equally, that access to nature has to be provided as a fundamental human right. And King isn't there yet, but uh, perhaps he would have gotten there. But he's looking for ways to get to this systemic reform under the circumstances where there's widespread discrimination in the labor markets, uh, where persons of color are denied membership in many labor unions, they had little hope of better pay and working conditions at all. But unionization was one of the few responses available to him, to, to, to minority workers. So, you know, he, he says, and you think of, you know, at the time and even today, if you look at who, who works in our sanitation departments, who, who works on those big trucks to come pick up our trash, it's almost always minority, members of minorities. And, and as I mentioned earlier about the changes that occur, it's usually, you know, the, the newest wave of immigrants, if those immigrants do not have a high level of technical education and skills, that they occupy the bottom rung on the economic ladder. And so even in the United States today, and I suspect in other countries, we have uh, the people that are, are in our construction industry tend to be minorities, tend to be people from Central or South America, not exclusively, but that's turned over as well from one ethnic group to the next. Um, it's hard work. My father was, was in the construction trades and all his brothers were in the construction trades. And uh, most of us who were in the next generation, we got a college education and moved off into some other direction. Someone else has to build the houses. Someone else has to come and repair, repair our houses when there are problems. <coughs> Excuse me. So with all this, what does he say to his, to his fellow blacks? He says, where Negroes are confined to the lowest paying jobs, they must get together to organize a union in order to have the kind of power that could enter into collective bargaining with their employers. His final book, Where Do We Go From Here, is a statement of positions on raising the standards of living for the poor among his fellow citizens. And this is where he's thinking, what can government really do? Uh, and is it job creation only, or is there more that has to be done? And he says, we must create full employment or we must create incomes. People must be made consumers by one method or the other. We realize that dislocations in the market operation of our economy and the prevalence of discrimination thrust people into idleness and bind them in constant or frequent unemployment against their will. So if you're not going to provide jobs for everyone, if unions are resistant to allow people to enter into several different aspects of the employment base because it would conflict with union regulations, well then maybe it's necessary to give people money. 
What King understood is that the existing system never achieved full employment. So even without bigotry and prejudice, there would always be a large number of people left out of the mainstream. Faced with the same observation, interestingly, the conservative free market economist Milton Friedman argued for a negative income tax as a means of enabling people to obtain necessary goods with a minimum involvement of social engineering and government bureaucracy. This is a big thing for Friedman in that he looked at, a, at the bloated bureaucracy and he basically said, um, why don't we trust people? We believe we've gone to this thing of social engineering. In 1968, he's on the, the program, The Firing Line with William F. Buckley Jr. And they're discussing the merits of his proposal for a negative income tax. <clears throat> and here's what he said. He said, a proposal for a negative income tax is a proposal to help poor people by giving them money, which is what they need rather than as is now required, now by requiring them to come before a governmental official, detail all their assets and liabilities and be told you can spend X dollars on rent, Y dollars on food, et cetera, and then be given a handout. Um, King continued in his own analysis in his book, basically says, Economic expansion alone cannot do the job of improving the employment situation of Negroes. It provides the base for improvement, but other things must, must be constructed upon it, especially if the tragic situation of youth is to be solved. In a booming economy, Negro youth are afflicted with unemployment as though in an economic crisis. They are the outsiders of the American expansion. And, you know, we see that even today, youth unemployment among minorities in our cities is two, three, four times the rate as it is among young white adults and youth. Well, <clears throat> this, this basically, this image I found tells the story, you know, a lot. Ever since families left the land, to work in the cities, we've experienced higher rates of youth unemployment. When people lived on family farms, having four or five children was a good idea because you needed, you know, a next generation to work the farm to help out. Everybody had a job, everybody had something to do. Bring people into the urban environment, that situation changes pretty dramatically. As King observes, the problems have always been far more acute in the sections of our cities with predominantly poor households. Jobs have moved away, few move in, and those that do move in tend to be in the underground economy and not always in the honest part of the underground economy. And of course, in many cities, the number of African-Americans living in sections with few employers has always been the greatest. So adults found their way into low-wage jobs using public transportation to get to employment where jobs were, but the unskilled youth were simply left out altogether. King says, depressed living standards for Negroes are not simply the consequence of neglect, nor can they be explained by the myth of the Negro's innate incapacities or by more sophisticated rationalization of his acquired infirmities. 
family disorgan disorganization, poor education, etc. They are a structural part of the economic system in the United States. Certain industries are based on a supply of low-paid, underskilled, and immobile non-white labor. And the desire for those employers is to always keep more people searching for work than work is available. Compete with one another at the bottom again for crumbs. And as King says, if, if, if blacks didn't unionize, they had no weapons to fight it unless government would materially step in with programs that would change the, the basis of this relationship. So the challenge King thought was to identify the structural flaws in the nation's economic system, then press for changes in law. As the followers of Henry George knew, the answer was to be found by looking into who owns the land and captures its rental value. For the poor that are living in American cities, however, few owned any land or even a house. And in a, in a very real sense, I think you could describe them as urban sharecroppers. Uh, what they managed to earn in whatever job they was found was often pretty much taken away by the high cost of terrible housing and the high cost of food in the neighborhoods in which they lived, the high cost of whatever other goods and services that were available to them in, neighbor, in neighborhoods that were inherently without a dynamic uh, above ground economy. In his famous April 1967 speech at the Riverside Church in New York City, he makes a damning indictment of a budgetary, budgetary imbalance that uh, really exists and continues to this very day. He says, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. We somehow seem to have the funds always for whatever the defense spending requires or seems to require. And yet the argument over spending to help people, help rebuild the cities, help provide education, help provide decent housing goes through political turmoil. Uh, for those of you who are joining us from other countries, I'd be interested to hear your perspective about your own uh, you know, place of living. Toward the end of his book, King, King adds this. And again, the book is titled, Where Do We Go From Here? He says, I am now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. And uh, in the United States, it's Andrew Yang has put this on the table and other politicians have embraced it to a degree. Um, those of us in the community familiar with Henry George's perspective, our response is basically, well, uh, if we're going to give everyone a basic income, where should that revenue come from? It should come from the taxation of economic rents. The problem with this measure then, of course, sorry about that, someone tried to call me. Um, 
The problem with, with this measure is, the, is similar to the problem of the negative income tax that was proposed by Milton Friedman. Now, Martin Luther King can be forgiven for failing to see the outcome, but Friedman, who's an economist, should have thought the issue through more thoroughly. Whenever you increase the household incomes broadly of people, without increasing the supply of housing, and most, most of the increase in disposable income will end, in, end up in the pockets of landlords. So just think of what's happening to rental housing in the United States today. The supply has not increased. The demand is has increased um, in part by household formation, young people forming households, but also, also in part because so many people who had ownership of a home lost their home during the pandemic due to the loss of jobs and income and foreclosures and evictions. So we have this terrible you know, problem of, of a real housing shortage, even though there are vacant houses in the hundreds of thousands sitting around our country, uh, but they're unaffordable based on the income that people actually have. So if we're going to, I've made this argument numerous times, and I believe it's true, absent a, a, a fundamental change in how government raises its revenue, moving to a land rent as revenue base. We need to subsidize the construction of millions of, of affordable housing units and make them permanently affordable so that people with low and moderate income will always have access to decent affordable housing and, and not be subjected to the private market where landlords will simply capitalize any increase in in broad disposable income into increased rents. And, and, and that is not even on the table. By the time King wrote this final book, here's what many of our cities in the United States look like, or sections of them. I mean, it, this, was, this is not unusual in the 60s to go through neighborhoods um, those of you who live in New York City, you know what the Bronx looked like. You know what you know uh, parts of Harlem looked like, and and other parts of the of the city. Um, other cities had similar kinds of problems. So King was working hard to get people to Washington in 1968. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference initiated what they called the Poor People's Campaign, and King stood with them. Something this is this is not exactly what was there. I you know cropped this to make to make the uh, the posters stand out. But as he prepared to join this campaign march in Washington, he added his voice to those calling for an economic bill of rights. He wanted again a guaranteed employment for all willing and able to work, a living income for those who weren't able to work and an end to discrimination in access to, in access to uh, decent, affordable housing. And he, and he called for the integration of the nation's schools. Another of his biographers, Richard Leischer, in 1995, uh, wrote this book titled The King. And, and his conclusion about Martin Luther King was as follows. He says, 
Martin Luther King was the last of the great liberals in America to identify the purposes of social reform with those of Christianity. He routinely cast the struggle for civil rights in terms of light and darkness, good and evil, and the two kingdoms. In an article uh, in Look that was published just, just after he was murdered, King wrote this. We call our demonstration a campaign for jobs and income because we feel that the economic question is the most crucial that Black people and poor people generally are confronting. There is a little de literal depression in the Negro community. When you have mass unemployment in the Negro community, it's called a social problem. When you have mass unemployment in the white community, it's called a depression. The fact is, there is a major depression in the Negro community. The unemployment rate is extremely high, and among Negro youth, it goes up as high as 40% in some cities. So I just want to summarize what I think I learned from examining uh, King's positions is that he believed the government is there to ensure that all citizens have what Mortimer Adler, the philosopher, called the goods of a decent human existence. In his experience, the system almost everyone chooses to call capitalism fails to deliver the goods. Therefore, the system had to be changed and government had to intervene on behalf of those at the margin. He embraced democracy, but again, a social democracy distinct from social Darwinism defended by some who stand right of center today. King has argued, as his quotes in the very beginning, that those who think they, they've put themselves up by the bootstrap in the white community have had a lot of help. And they need to, whites need to recognize that they've had this advantage for generations. Unfortunately, like most of his contemporaries who cared deeply about ending poverty, Martin Luther King Jr. did not yet fully grasp the extent to which privilege dictates economic outcomes in our country. Or perhaps more accurately, he'd not yet recognized some of the most powerful, powerful forms of entrenched privilege that in fact do plague our society. His struggles helped to lessen privilege based on race or the color of one's skin. And every day we observe how other forms of privilege continue to threaten our very democracy and stand in the way of a society built on equality of opportunity. As have many before and since, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life in an effort to help change the course of history. And we're still, many of us, fighting that same battle. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.